0: Hi everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our second season of Medtronic Talks. In our first season, we spoke with the leaders of Medtronic's operating units to better understand the direction of each of the businesses. Now, with their courses set and clear, we're gonna talk to the engineers, scientists, physicians, and other experts who are executing on these strategies. We'll still keep a tight focus on each of Medtronic's businesses, but we are going to get a lot deeper into these stories. Let's go. Hi everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Medtronic Talks podcast. Please excuse uh, my voice. I have a bit of a cold today, but uh, we will soldier on. Our guest today is Medtronic's CFO, Karen Parkhill. Karen joined Medtronic six years ago, uh, moving into the medtech industry for the first time. So we'll talk a bit about her transition to CFO. She had been a CFO prior to joining Medtronic. And then we'll talk about the transition to Medtronic and the medtech industry. This is her first medtech industry job. And what does she think about uh, about the industry? We'll talk about how the CFO role has changed, uh, where some of her attention is being given in terms of uh, pay equity and, uh, and broader representation in, uh, in leadership. So, uh, Karen Parkhill has a lot on her plate, and we talked uh, about many, many of those things. So, I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with Karen Parkhill, the CFO of Medtronic. But before we begin this episode, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Finnegan. I'm here with Anthony Delmonico, who's a partner at Finnegan. Anthony, please take a minute to tell us about Finnegan.
1: Finnegan is an intellectual property-only law firm, meaning that we only deal with intellectual property, trademarks, copyrights, patents, trade secrets, licensing of those... Uh, We do touch on work in the cybersecurity area. We do a little bit of work on the FDA area, but it's mostly focused on intellectual property. Finnegan's been around for almost 60 years now uh, as an IP-only focused firm. We have about 300 uh, attorney specialists, technical specialists that deal with all sorts of different technology areas so that if we have a client that comes to us and needs a specific uh, technology to be worked on. We always have somebody available that has that background and that can take care of that type of work. We spread out our, our groups into th- different categories such as bio, chem, electrical, mechanical, but there's quite a bit of overlap between uh, the, 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 the uh, attorneys at the firm. And we really are an all-encompass, we are, really are a firm that just works together and that tries to get the best, uh, most efficient solutions to our client. So in doing that, you know, you may be working with me as somebody who's going to be doing some sort of patent litigation, but if the client, if my client has some trademark questions or has a design patent question or an area of IP law that I may not be as familiar with, I will put my client in touch with another attorney that's going to have that expertise and that's going to save the client obviously time and money. Uh, And just make sure that they get their solutions much more efficiently than if they just have one person kind of digging into everything and learning about areas that they may not be as familiar with.
0: All right. That's great, Anthony Delmonico. We'll hear more from him a little later in the podcast. If you'd like more information about Finnegan right now, you can go to its website, finnegan.com. Well, Karen Parkhill, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Tom. Thrilled to be here.
0: Great to finally talk to you directly. You spoke at a conference I helped organize a couple of years ago in Minneapolis. And of course, I've seen you on all the investor calls. So nice to finally put in a digital face to a digital face, even if it's over Zoom. Well, thank you. I agree. I'm curious, as as always, about how folks find their way to Medtronic and to the medtech industry. Yours uh, is sort of a later arrival than most to the medical device industry. Talk a bit about your career prior to joining Medtronic as, uh, as CFO, and then I'd like to uh, I'd like to sort of understand the difference between the industries, but what were you doing prior to uh, to joining Medtronic?
2: Yeah. So, you know what? I'd start by saying it took me a little while to find my destiny, Tom. But
0: <laughs> I'm glad you did.
2: But the healthcare industry in Medtronic is clearly that. So I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here. I've been here six years now. Um, and prior to my time at Medtronic, I spent half my career now, or a little more than half, as an investment banker, mostly with J.P. Morgan. I spent 20 years with J.P. Morgan.
0: Did you focus on medical devices or were you across? Well, the ironic
2: thing about my time at, at, as an investment banker is that I covered practically every industry out there except for financial <laughs> institutions and in healthcare, Wow, um, where, I, where I obviously have served as CFO. So after, um, after 15 years as an, in investment banking at J.P. Morgan, I really decided that I wanted to do something different. And thankfully, I was able to do that within the company. I moved over and became CFO of the commercial bank within J.P. Morgan, which was one of the large uh, publicly reported lines of business. Um, Mm. And that started my CFO career. After five years and several of those years uh, living the height of the financial services downturn, where you learn (laughs) a ton, I got a call to uh, be CFO at the top of a a company, uh, Comerica Bank. And I moved over uh, to Comerica as their vice chairman and CFO. And I spent five years at Comerica living what happens after the onslaught of the financial services downturn with a significant increased regulation. And, you know, after five years of, of that, got a call from a headhunter about this amazing company, Medtronic. And, you know, the more I did my research, the more I decided I really wanted that job.
0: That's great. Uh, I want to explore that jump for a second. But uh, I'm just curious, the move from investment banking to being CFO was it just a matter of, I find with, with journalism and writing, you, you write about a lot of different teams. And at some point, you just sort of want to be part of a team your own. Was that sort of what was driving you to be, to finally sort of join the executive ranks of some of these companies that you've been not covering specifically, but you were covering larger companies and, and seeing how they sort of exist as part of a single organization?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Clearly, I wanted to move from serving a client to to actually living and breathing and,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, being the one that was accountable, responsible for delivering. And so that was part of the move. The other part of the move was just investment banking's a very difficult, hard lifestyle too. Mm-hmm. I was traveling like a fiend at the time. I had twin boys who were five when I left investment banking and, wow. you know, I was an absent mom and, becoming increasingly unhappy about that. So it was both personal and professional to make the switch. And, you know, I haven't looked back a day since.
0: That's great. Those are two great reasons right there. So, yeah, let's talk about then the move to Medtronic. Was there any part of you that was, uh, I've never done medical devices. I'm not sure if this is the right fit.
2: Yeah. Well, of course, you know, anytime you haven't lived in an industry, there's, there's always an anxious anticipation. But I guess I have throughout my career, found ways to become an expert on an industry in fairly short order, particularly during my investment banking career, when I would pick up covering and being responsible for different industries, you know, you learn how to, how to learn quickly. And so it wasn't daunting to me to learn a new industry, but it was, it was my next new challenge. So coming in, you spend a lot of time listening and asking questions, never leap to conclusions mm-hmm. um, the first couple months on the job. You know, you may have a tendency to. You've got to stop yourself and really listen, learn, to understand far more deeply.
0: Were the uh, the opportunities or the qualities of the job at Medtronic that convinced you to move into this uh, into this new industry? What what appealed to you about being in the medical device industry?
2: Yeah, you know, in the in the medical device industry, and specifically at Medtronic, we just serve a higher purpose. And, you know, we live, we live that higher purpose every day. And today is a very special day in the Medtronic calendar. We say it's the most important day of the Medtronic calendar because we have a holiday program that we've had for many decades where we invite patients back and their physicians and their families to tell us their stories. And it reminds us, you know, every day, even in the toughest days, you know, why we do what we do. So it it was a poignant morning this morning, too, for me to really recognize that, you know, even though I may not be on the front line or I may not be in the innovative side of our business, that, you know, everybody matters at Medtronic. And, you know, what we do to alleviate pain, restore health and extend life really does change lives.
0: That's terrific. What a great tradition that is. And it it always is uh, something when you actually talk to person who lives with the device that that helps them lead a normal life. And you really under, begin to understand what impact these devices that I talk about so casually actually have on people's lives. So I can't imagine what that experience is like once a year. What about on the industry side? I'm curious. I'd love to understand what are some of the idiosyncrasies that you've sort of noticed about the medical device industry other than the, and I do honestly believe there's a sense of purpose that other industries don't have. And it's why I like covering the industry so much. But how else is it is it different than other industries?
2: Yeah. You know, every industry has its uniqueness, but medical technology definitely does. And, you know, for one, we have high investment needs that can have high risk to them. And, you know, we also have very long lead times with that high investment need to take things to market. Sometimes it's decades that we're investing before we have that life-changing technology out in the hands of doctors and and into patients and so those long lead times and that high investment means you need to really choose wisely you need to make the right investments you need to make the right bets you need to have the right talent that drives those bets you know we also have higher margins as a result in our industry and you know, when you're taking that kind of risk, you need to have higher margins to be able to continue to do what you do. And that's built into our mission statement, actually, that, that you know, we need to make a fair profit in order to, you know, continue to invest for the future in our company. We also um, are highly regulated. You know, many industries are highly regulated. Sure. For us, you know, in order to get our products in the hands of patients, we have to go through significant regulatory approvals and many times prove through significant clinical trials that our technology is the right and safe technology. And then when we're manufacturing, the FDA approves our manufacturing lines. So whenever we need to make a switch or a change in our operations or manufacturing, it's not like turning a switch. Right. You have to really plan and the FDA has to come back in and reinspect you know, before you can really make changes even on the manufacturing floor. So it makes us unique. It makes us, you know, not be able to move with significant speed, but we have to be smart enough to be able to, you know, drive through challenges and move with as much speed as we can.
0: So what is it like to to be, to have the responsibility of doing financial forecasting in an industry, as you said, that is controlled by so many outside forces like regulatory, like clinical trials. I mean, you can be projecting the the growth that will come from a product you haven't released yet and find out in late clinical trials that it doesn't work or that doesn't work as anticipated. Is it drastically different to be the financial officer at a company like this where, again, you can't really forecast as easily what your future businesses may be like?
2: Yeah. You know, I smile because it is it is a daily challenge for us. Because you can encounter so many different risks, and it is difficult to forecast. And we're living through some of those challenges right now, particularly with you know supply chain challenges, mm-hmm. procedures that haven't necessarily come back to pre-COVID levels like we had anticipated. So it is a challenge. And I would say key is ensuring that we have you know different scenarios, different scenario plannings that we continually assess our risks and opportunities and talk about those and measure those against the forecast that we you know pivot when we need to on certain things to help offset you know challenges that we face so it is a constantly dynamic environment which does make it difficult and you know you just you just need to continually focus and and manage through it
0: I'll take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor Finnegan. Once again, I'm here with Anthony Delmonico. He's a partner at Finnegan. Anthony, what are some of the larger concerns that clients are coming to you with at Finnegan?
1: Uh, so a lot of, uh, a lot of issues that we're, we're coming across, especially over the last year or two in the medical device area, uh, has been, uh, with respect to one first trade secrets. Uh, second, I would say, uh, artificial intelligence. And then third, we've been seeing quite a bit on, uh, cybersecurity issues, uh, with respect to uh, trade secrets, obviously this is an issue that's been around you know for for a long time. But particularly given the recent uh, the recent issues with respect to COVID, as well as uh, changes within folks going from one company to another, there's been quite a bit of uptake of trade secret issues, and a lot of clients are coming in asking, "What can we do to protect ourselves?" With respect to AI, th- there's quite a bit. Uh, there's been quite a bit of issues that have been coming in with respect to learning. You know, who owns what technology? Who owns to say the training set when you're setting up an AI system, as well as who owns that the frankly all the information that the AI system gathers, and then who's going to be able to use that information and how. And then at least with respect to cybersecurity, now we have all these companies that are gathering all this information, all this type of data that has some high economic value and try and protect that information from hackers or any sort of external, any sort of external activities that are trying to come in and take that information.
0: So Anthony, you mentioned trade secrets. Uh, That's always been a concern in MedTech, as you said, but what are some of the unique challenges you're, you're hearing about now?
1: So the unique challenges, again, it's it's just kind of a combination of what's going on at the time, as well as just, the, you know, with technology that's been changing over the years, uh, it's becoming more and more prevalent than what's going on. I should also mention that there uh, the potential federal law of eliminating non-competes, we see down the line as being another area where trade secret issues are going to be coming up. So again, with people working from home due to COVID and with the, the this job mobility that's occurring right now. We have a lot, quite a few clients that are recognizing, you know, the possibility or openings that they may have of losing information, losing their trade secrets going to competitors. So clients are coming in and asking us, well, what can we do? uh, What do we need to do to, one, protect our, our trade secrets? And then, you know, how do we make sure that our trade secrets are enforceable? And so we usually sit down with a client and we have a, a checklist that we'll go through and we'll run through each different aspect of, you know, what type of material do you have that that should be protected by trade secret. And then using that information, we determine how best that the company can protect the trade secret because a trade secret really isn't enforceable unless you show that your company is doing at least, at least what they should be doing based on the size of the company and the, the technical uh, acumen of the company to make sure that 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 protection is there. So right now, we just work with clients to make sure that they're doing what they can to protect it and keeping an eye on uh, what other potential trade secret violations may be occurring and making sure that uh, trade secret issues don't arise in the future.
0: Thank you, Nathan Delmonico, for joining us on the Medtronic Talks podcast. Once again, if you'd like to find out more about Finnegan, go to finnegan.com. So let's talk about your, your six years here at, at Medtronic. You joined doing the math 2016. Over that time, there's been a reorganization of the company. I know it was a couple of years into your being there. I'm curious what went into the technical elements of the of the realigning of the businesses. I understand the strategies and how the the new businesses were reorganized, but how does that work on your end when it comes to sort of financially rejiggering the the organization? What what goes into that?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, we did put in place a new our our new operating model which was a large change for our organization. And we we started this journey, you know, during COVID, at the beginning of COVID. And the executive committee spent hours on Zoom calls, reshaping how mm. we to um, structure and operate our company. And, you know, the fact that we worked on it together meant that there was great alignment across the entire executive team on this. With our new operating model, we disbanded our former group structure where we had four groups uh, within Medtronic, which were each like many company entities within Medtronic. And we disbanded that and instead empowered the operating unit or business units that were underneath those old groups to make them the center of our operating model. And so we now have 20 operating units within Medtronic and have they're grouped by portfolios, but those portfolios are not many companies within a company anymore. And what that new operating model did for us was gave us far greater insight, transparency into the needs of those businesses, the challenges, the opportunities, you know, gave us better insight into whether we were invested properly for the future of what that business could drive. And it also, you know, helped us see better the talent, the talent needs at each of our businesses too. So... You know, it's been a terrific change. And, you know, you asked about the technical changes behind it. You know, clearly when you you reorg, you need to have your financial reporting follow your organizational structure. And so we did need to change how we did our internal financial reporting, uh, mostly, um, because we now have 20 operating units. And within the geographies, we have geographies that are OU led, we call it. Meaning the operating units own what happens in those geographies, and then we have emerging markets and regional geographies where the regions own what happens. And so we had to change our reporting around you know our regions, around our new operating units. And that took time, but I have an amazing team that you know did it in pretty short order. So that was one of the changes that you need to make. The other is you know we put in place new operating mechanisms. You know one of those operating mechanisms that we put in place was we, anointed a a capital allocation committee within the company, which is um, our CEO, myself, our head of strategy, and our portfolio leaders. And um, rather than us, you know, just allocating capital almost equally to each of the old former groups that we do, we really go deep on, you know, the needs of our businesses and how we allocate a capital against the important opportunities in R&D projects down into the businesses. And that committee is is responsible for that important work.
0: Did it, you mentioned that a lot of that had to happen, uh, the initial calls during COVID. I was wondering, how did that change the uh, the organization or the rollout? Did it slow things down at all? Did it, it must have been more challenging, at least different than what you thought it would be? But what was the impact of having to do much yeah. of that rem-
2: You know, as they always say, never waste a good crisis. And, (laughs) you know, at the height of COVID, we were dealing with lots of things, you know, trying to forecast how we were going to perform in that kind of environment, along with, you know, things like our um, ventilators were in such significant high demand. How do we Increase the manufacturing output of our of our ventilators and distribute those around the world to the areas of greatest need. So we were dealing with so many different things at the time that we were putting in place our new operating model. But I would say, you know, you never waste a good crisis. We worked really hard. We were in constant communication. Thank God for modern technology that enabled all of that because we were all working from home. Absolutely. Um, But it just meant that we spent, you know, a lot more hours together. Than we normally would have to make it happen.
0: And how have things played out so far? It's only been a couple of years, but everyone happy with the results?
2: Yeah. Change is never perfect or easy. And you know, we we've continued to make enhancements and refinements to the changes that we've made where we see, you know, an important need to do that. But we're we are definitely seeing, you know, the early wins of what we put in place. And, you know, some of those wins we've seen, you know, recently in businesses like our spine business, which is typically a slow growth business for us. And, you know, we have created a full ecosystem now around our spinal implants. And, you know, with that ecosystem, just last quarter, we grew 15% in spine. Um, And for spine, you know, so we are seeing the important, you know, results and early signs in certain areas.
0: The overall quarter, though, is the revenue numbers were a little disappointing. You you were pretty frank about it. And Jeff was pretty frank about it on the analyst call. How would you assess the last quarter? I don't want to put words in either of your mouths. And and so what led to that outcome?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, second quarter and honestly, our quarter before that, too, has been a little rough for us. You know, we've had pretty significant supply challenges that we've been working through. That was most impactful in our first quarter, but we still had some impacts in the second quarter and some will linger uh, through the rest of the year. But I would say in this past quarter, we did miss our top line expectations. And whenever we miss like that, we, you know, we never take that lightly. But I would say the miss was primarily split between two challenges, One, you know, we had procedure volumes in some of our markets that have been slower to return to normal levels, and two, some of our supply challenges persisted longer than we anticipated. You know, on the procedure volumes, we we still haven't gotten back to pre-COVID levels in some elective coronary PCI procedures, in GI procedures, in our TAVR business, and in spinal cord stimulation, and also in some. Uh, Less emergent surgical procedures. And then on the supply challenges, we did clear much of, you know, a lot of our backlog that we had anticipated to clear, but a lot of that came later in the quarter than we anticipated. And while that came later, it meant that we had, you know, customers out there, particularly in our surgical innovation business. I mean, not customers, we had competitors out there that were rightly, in their own minds, taking advantage of our situation and stocking the customer shelves. And so we're going to get those customers back while our competitor stepped in because because we've got long-term supply arrangements with these customers. We're under contractual arrangements. And we've seen this disruption before when the tables were turned. And our competitor had some short-term disruptions, and we stepped in but the customers do go back to their long-term contractual arrangements. So we'll get those back over time. It's just gonna take a little longer than we anticipated.
0: Interesting. We've seen during COVID that a lot of things change in how we do business. We mentioned the power of of, uh, connectivity and, and tools like we're talking over Zoom right now. It also seems to me, and I think probably the evolution was already happening, but your role as CFO and other, the role of CFO, taken on other responsibilities, including oversight to some degree over ESG and more social governance issues. Uh, How has the role of CFO changed just in the time you've been doing it? Has it been happening a lot longer than the last couple of years? And I'm only beginning to notice it because it's come to the forefront of our, many of our conversations as it should, or has that importance of ESG really accelerated over the last couple of years?
2: Yeah, I would say ESG has definitely accelerated over the last few years. You know, I'd say it was this—the seeds were planted many years ago on ESG, and I think it continued to gain momentum every year. And in the last couple of years, become very important at Medtronic, partly because of our mission and partly because of you know what what our focus is of our employee base. We have always been focused on ESG, and so it's natural; it comes naturally to us. But it is becoming increasingly important for many of our stakeholders, you know, our investors, the customers that we serve, our employee base, our younger generation employee base in particular. And so, you know, we have upped our game around ESG too. There are so many things that touch ESG, and there are so many responsibilities distributed throughout Medtronic around the topics of ESG. But we do have a committee. Within Medtronic, an ESG committee, and I, I do chair that committee. So I, I have the pleasure and the privilege and the honor to chair it. But it is comprised of so many people that drive, you know, environmental sustainability, that drive our diversity, equity, and inclusion, that that drive our governance. So there are many, many facets of it.
0: And let's focus on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion as well within within the workforce. What kind of strides have you made there at Medtronic? And I'd love to get your perspective on where you think the medical device industry, perhaps more broadly, how it's doing in terms of ensuring that enough women are, are in the, the C-suites like, like yourself.
2: So I think we've made tremendous strides at Medtronic on all things DE&I. We have a very strong focus and effort on it. We have strong employee resource groups around the company. And we have executive sponsorship of those employee resource groups. And I am very proud to be the executive sponsor for our Pride Network as one example. We also have you know, full gender and ethnically diverse pay equity in the United States, so 100% pay equity. We're at 99% pay equity for gender-based pay around the world. Hmm. And we won't stop until we get to 100% there. You know, our board is now comprised 36% of women and 27% ethnically diverse uh, backgrounds on our board. We have many, many female and ethnically diverse, you know, vice presidents throughout this company. And I also am proud to be the executive sponsor of our Women Vice President Network as well. And so it's part of our DNA to be incredibly diverse. And inclusive, and you know we're we're gonna you know continue on this important journey at Medtronic because it makes us a far better and stronger company as a result.
0: Those are interesting figures with the, the gender equity, uh, just to, as a matter of explaining, this you're, you're measuring to ensure that men and women in the same role are, are, are getting the same level of pay, correct?
2: You got it. Yes. Is
0: that, is that something that's been tracked historically, or is that something that uh, you've all taken it upon yourself to? Examine and monitor now.
2: Yeah, it is something that many companies track today and have started to disclose and in their integrated reports. But not all companies are at the pay equity levels that we are, and so it is something that you know that we're proud of and you know are always going to maintain.
0: And last question: How do you view, if you're comfortable talking about it, the the medical device industry more broadly when it comes to women being represented in in, in the senior levels at the at the, the C level?
2: Yeah. So I think the medical device industry has many great women in senior levels, but we need more. And so, you know, it is a clear focus of mine to mentor and to place, you know, amazing women in positions of power and influence. You know, our founder, Earl Bakken, who invented the first battery operated pacemaker in a garage, not far from our operating headquarters once said that he dreamed of a world where women lead, hmm. and you know, every time I repeat his words, I get chills, um, because I too dream of a world where women lead, and I do think, no matter you know whether it's the medical device industry or any other industry, or even outside of business, in politics, in religions, that where women lead, you know, the world is better off.
0: Excellent. Well, that's an important and perfect place to end the conversation. Karen Parkhill, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
2: Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it.
0: Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much to Karen Parkhill for joining us on the Metronic Talks podcast. Thank you to Finnegan for sponsoring this episode. And of course, thanks to you, our listeners, for being part of the Metronic Talks podcast. If you like to listen to future episodes, I want to make sure you don't miss any of them. Do subscribe to the Metronic Talks podcast network. You can find it on any major podcast player, and that way you can not only listen to future episodes, but find the back ones very easily as well. You can also find those back episodes on devicetalks.com and medtronic.com. Please do share this episode on social media, and when you do, connect with me. My name is Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. I'm on LinkedIn and would love to be part of that conversation and to be uh, connected with you in the future. All right, well, that concludes this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. We'll be back in just a couple of weeks with another great episode waiting for you.